welcome into choir practice. Here's something I've been thinking about, and it was something that I wanted to do for a little while as I've started working my way through these podcasts. I thought to myself, you know what, I might be able to boost up a little bit of content, but also provide just a little bit something different um, to listeners. And that way, you'll have stuff to listen to other than just my guest. And so the idea was that I would um, do some little bonus episodes or some, you know, episodes in between by uh, reading from my book. I'm always talking about it. It's always the sponsor of my show. And so, yeah, I thought I would read from my book a little bit. And that way, for for those of you that don't have it or haven't bought it yet, um, you can get uh, get a little bit of... Uh, the inspiration for this podcast and um, and the reason why I keep having all my buddies come on here and talk about uh, their experiences in law enforcement. So yeah, let's get after it. This is um, my rookie memoir, Father's Legacy, uh, written by me, started it in 2002, published in 2010. Chapter one, his father's gun. It was a warm Arizona summer night and I was standing outside the bedroom door of an aging single wide trailer my gun drawn and my heart pounding uncontrollably in my ears. I was thinking clearly, but my mind was trying to talk me out of the next few minutes. I don't want to go in there. Am I really ready to see the horrific scene on the other side of this door jam? I was dispatched to the call, so I knew exactly what to expect. My sergeant, Louis Salika, and two of my close friends, Charlie Kakias and Pete Galvan, were lined up behind me, waiting for me to make my move. I peeked around the corner and I saw the foot of a subject who appeared to be lying on a bed inside the room. I said, yep, he's in there. I was stalling for time. Something behind me, someone behind me said, well, let's go then. Now I had no choice. I had to force my body to move from that door jam, walk into this room, and witness yet another dead body. I took a deep breath, and I rolled off the wall into the room. Pointing my gun out in front of me, I walked to the deepest corner of the room looking for potential threats. Thinking back, I remember I was not mentally prepared to see what I saw next. Lying on the bed was an elderly male who had been stabbed multiple times around the neck, shoulders, and chest area. He was lying in a pool of blood, a pool of clotted blood, wearing a pair of white boxer shorts speckled with crimson spots. He stared at the ceiling with that thousand-yard stare I had come to associate with death. In his facial features, I saw no pain and no worries. Just release. Once we determined the scene was secure, I had a chance to look around a little more. I remembered seeing a single stab wound in the top of each of his thighs. These injuries were very peculiar to me, almost as if the suspect inflicted these wounds more out of anger than for the obvious purpose of murder. The victim's blood trailed down the sheets to the floor and pulled into a perfect circular puddle. And... Although our victim did not appear to have any gunshot wounds, I saw a 9mm bullet lying in the pool of blood on the floor. Everyone except the victim and I left just after midnight, and I was tasked with keeping the scene secure until the homicide unit arrived. I sat outside on the tailgate of the victim's truck, and I waited until I was relieved. I'll get back to the story a little bit later, and I'll tell you why it stands out as one of my more significant memories. When I decided to write my memoir... My mind was flooded with great memories. I began to remember all of the stories I had shared a dozen times with police and civilian friends. 
I could hardly write fast enough to capture the memories which flowed freely from my subconscious to the tips of my cramping fingers. But as I continued to write and think about my reasons for writing, I slowly came to the realization that my thoughts and memories, uh, that writing my thoughts and memories down on paper served as a way of consoling myself, catharsis if ever there was a truer meaning. Writing became a way for me to release the grip these events had on my psyche, to get the weight of these memories off my chest. In writing, I could attempt to correct some of the damage caused by years of continually being exposed to the gruesome sights that could hurt even the hardest of hearts. I learned in college that police officers have one of the highest suicide and divorce rates in the country, and their life expectancy after retirement is phenomenally low. In my mind, I hope to positively affect my own mortality by letting go of some of the traumatic events I've witnessed. I would also like to shed a little light and understanding into the minds of those less fortunate souls who will otherwise miss the opportunity of this noble calling. Police Officer How I Chose Law Enforcement I was born at St. Francis Cabrini Hospital in Alexandria, Louisiana in 1974. I was the second child of three in a career military family. I was a textbook middle child. I was a peacekeeper amongst my siblings, and I was, a very easy, I was very easy to get along with. I guess my largest character flaw that I struggle with even today is that I tend to be guarded and standoffish when confronted with social situations and groups of people I'm not familiar with. I know the reason I'm this way is because I was involved in a very bad accident when I was just six months old. I was burned by hot water over 75% of my body. The scarring I was most concerned with was on my hands and my arms. You know, the scars that were most visible to anyone who looked. Children can be so brutally honest and inquisitive and don't always realize they're embarrassing the person they're bringing attention to. This was a large hurdle for me in life because my family moved every three years, and each time we moved, I had to face this dilemma all over again. We moved from Columbus, Mississippi, where we lived from 1976 to 1978, to Great Britain, and we were there from 78 to 81. We then moved to Alamogordo, New Mexico, from, and we lived there from 81 to 84. From there, we moved to Bitburg, West Germany, from 84 to 87, and then finally to Tucson, Arizona. My father retired here after spending 20 years in the Air Force. We enjoyed Tucson, and we made it our home. Throughout life, I played sports, and I found that, it was a pretty, that I was pretty good and learned that it was a, a way I could quickly get kids to accept me. As I continued to grow, my parents never held me back or stopped me from participating in any sport I was interested in. I never believed that I couldn't play just like all the other children. The thing is, the doctors who had treated me for my scars so many years before and fused all the toe bones in my right foot told my parents I would most likely walk with a severe limp and would probably never run like most children. As graduation from Palo Verde High School grew near, I found myself with a college scholarship to play football for Arizona Western College in Yuma, Arizona. In order to sign this letter of intent to attend their school and receive my scholarship, I had to select a major course of study. I looked through the school's program, and I saw they offered a degree in criminal justice. I remember thinking, if, someone, if something happens and I'm not going to be the next Joe Montana, I can be a cop. I've seen the TV show cops running, tackling, driving fast, and pointing guns at people. I can do that. My football career was short-lived, ending after one, one dismal season, uh, but as I started taking criminal justice classes, I was excited by the possibilities of becoming a police officer. My professors were all retired police officers and could spin the best tales. 
I found myself regularly shocked and amazed at how ignorant and cruel people could be to one another. At the end of the year, I moved back to Tucson. <laughs> That's my coworker Flynn. He's dreaming on the floor right now. Sorry. <laughs> All right. I think he's done. No, he's not done. Flynn. Prior to graduating in the summer of 1995, I had to complete a 160-hour internship with a local law enforcement agency. My professor assigned me to intern with the city of South Tucson. South Tucson is a small city within the city of Tucson, which is infamous for serial criminal activity. So riding in the patrol car in South Tucson was like having a front row seat in an episode of Cops for eight straight hours. Not only did I become addicted to the accelerated heart rate and rush of adrenaline during the internship, but it made my it but it opened my eyes to a world I had never seen. I saw dead, decaying bodies and people with gunshot and stabbing wounds, both as victims of crime and of self-inflicted injuries. One requirement of the internship was that I keep a journal of my activities and experiences. Many times my professor would read my journal entries in disbelief, and then he would warn me to be careful. One incident in particular that comes to mind was when we responded to a subject who was stabbed in the arm just outside of a youth center. Once we arrived, I was very interested to see the action in the gore. The victim was yelling and screaming profanities at both of us and the paramedics. His tantrum alone was quite a scene, but I also noticed there were several children who had just been released from an after-school program at the center, and they were walking right by the scene. I remember their innocent faces and how I felt an overwhelming sense of sadness for them. Sadness because I could feel my own innocence slowly being stripped away and er with every new experience. And although this victim was the victim of a serious assault, he was there because of his own actions, i.e. A, a botched drug deal. And now he was indirectly victimizing these children who had no choice but to take part in, the gruesome, in this gruesome drama. I saw their faces, their innocent eyes, staring at the same shocking event I was trying to wrap my mind around. For all I knew, this would be just one of many scenes these children would go on to be a witness to. Another incident we responded to was an 18-year-old boy who shot himself in the head after an argument with his girlfriend. He had a small caliber handgun, and due to the angle at which he pointed it at his head, the bullet had gone under his scalp, which was redirected by his skull, and traveled underneath his skin to the back of his neck where it became lodged. When we pulled up, he was lying in the driveway crying in pain and his girlfriend was kneeling beside him. She was holding a towel, and she was trying to hold a towel on his head to stop the bleeding. At one point, the officer I was riding with wanted to see the extent of the injury and pulled the towel away. I could see what I thought was a large flap that ran the length of his head from the front to the back. He had basically given himself a large makeshift gill and... As head injuries often do, he was bleeding all over the place. Paramedics transported him to the hospital where they were able to remove the bullet and stitch his head back up. At the scene, we found a small amount of marijuana, so we drove over to the hospital and arrested him for possession and for discharging a firearm in the city limits. We also arrested him for endangerment once we learned that he had shot himself with his 18-month-old uh, child standing nearby. This last story from my internship is when I saw my first dead body. Management from an apartment complex that housed mentally ill clients called about a horrible smell coming from one of their apartments. 
On the way to the call, I can remember the officer stating that it was probably the, it was probably a DOA, dead on arrival, and my stomach filled with butterflies and started to churn. Once we arrived, someone from the complex told us the apartment in question was on the second floor, and they directed us to the elevator. As I stepped into the elevator, I could already smell it. The butterflies fluttered and my heart started racing. Going to any dead body call is a lot like being dragged towards a large, ominous roller coaster. Your sheer, morbid curiosity draws you in, while that little voice in the back of your head is telling you to run like hell. I stepped out of the elevator and the smell literally hit me. It was like a solid physical force to push against. I grabbed my t-shirt and I pulled it up over my nose trying to block out the smell. The officer I was with and his backup began laughing at me. We were told the apartment was at the end of the hallway. As we walked, I could see where the other residents had shoved towels and sheets into the cracks of their doors to block out the smell. If that doesn't show mental instability, their solution was to try and block out the smell rather than call 911. The closer we got to the door, the more I realized my t-shirt was doing jack shit to filter out the stench. I began to question whether or not I wanted to continue. One officer opened the door and I could see inside. There was a large black male lying on the couch wearing tidy whiteies and a wife beater tank top. He was bloated and I could see bodily fluids trailing from underneath the couch out to the middle of the living room floor. Inside the door, I saw a driver's license and some loose change that was lying on a small table. I picked up the license and I saw that the dead guy was actually a white male, but because of body decay, he had swollen and turned dark purplish color. It was shocking to know that the body I was looking at used to be a white guy. The smell became too overwhelming, so I moved away from the door and walked to an open window at the end of the hallway. It was all I could do to save face and not lose my lunch right there. Speaking of which, I think this happened before lunch because I can remember the officers made some comment to the effect of that they were glad this call came in before lunch and not after. I think we went to lunch not too long after this call too. Sick and raw. As I looked out the window, taking in deep breaths of fresh air and stifling my gag reflex, I could see a garden below with several clients who were walking around in the neatly formed rows of dirt. Employees below pointed out the dead guy's sister, who also lived in the complex. She waved at me and smiled. She was completely oblivious. The employee said that she last saw her brother approximately four days prior to this call. Again, I felt that similar sense of sadness for her. Needless to say, despite all the drama, the internship solidified my love for police work, and I graduated from Pima College in the summer of 95 with two associate's degrees. I decided I was done going to school, I was getting burned out, and the two degrees were all of the college that I had patience for. While still in college, I proposed to my girlfriend, Tanya, so I decided it was time to put away the books and join the workforce so we could get married. I would spend the next two and a half years working in state and county corrections. In October 1995, I applied with the, uh, the Arizona Department of Corrections. I was hired almost immediately and began the academy one week later. I turned 21 years old in my f first week at the academy. There were some very interesting characters who worked there. We had a sergeant instructor who admitted he had his name, his badge, and his badge number tattooed on his chest. He said it was in case of a large riot, the other officers would know whose cold, lifeless body they were dragging from the cell block. What a nut. He used to brag about an incident where he was assaulted and the inmate used his head to break a ceramic toilet bowl. I arrived at Central Unit in Florence 
Arizona, in December of 1995. Inside the walls, as Central Unit was affectionately known, was a whole new world I was not familiar with. The inmates there looked at you as if you were an inanimate object, a look that let you know they would not hesitate to take you out. Central Unit was a high-security yard that had 20-foot walls with gun towers placed throughout. The inmates in Central Unit all had multiple life sentences, and they were convicted for serious crimes against people. I remember one shift, I was assigned to work the front desk of cell block 4, CB4. While being taken to solitary confinement for a violation, an inmate yelled at the officers, I have three life sentences plus 60 years, what the fuck can you do to me? I quickly found out that prison life, no matter which side of the bars you were on, was harsh and unforgiving. I hated every minute of it. Another dismal aspect of working for the Department of Corrections was the high turnover and low manpower. The pay was pretty lousy, and the clientele did not encourage qualified candidates to apply, a lesson I learned too late. Needless to say, most employees I knew who attempted a career in corrections did not last long. Morale was low, and there had been incidents, and rumors of incidents, where staff would befriend an inmate and begin bringing in contraband items for them. For this reason, we were required to pass through a metal scanner, just like the ones at the airport, every day when we arrived. We were also subjected to random pat searches where the current shift would pat down the officers arriving for work, looking for any illegal or forbidden items. I remember feeling very degraded and worried. I wasn't sure who I could trust, and I just wanted to get out of there as soon as possible. I would have to say that very little, if anything, is ever corrected in the prison system. It should be called adult housing for jackasses who are too stupid to follow the law. If ever there was a bright spot or a ray of hope, it was working in the towers. Central Unit had five guard towers that were manned to help watch the inmates from up high. I'd sit and listen to the radio, often looking through binoculars and wishing I was somewhere else. I had no direct contact with inmates, and I was just armed to the teeth. I had a thirty-eight revolver, a 12-gauge shotgun, and a two-two-three rifle, just in case an inmate should try to escape or kill another inmate. I have to admit, I was pretty disappointed I never fired any of these weapons other than in qualifications. I was very fortunate to be hired by the Pima County Sheriff's Department as a corrections officer in May of 1996. My wife and I had been married for about a month, and I was going to enjoy better pay and shorter days. It was about an hour and a half drive from Tucson to Florence, but just 20 minutes to the jail. The inmates in the jail were also easier to manage because they were still awaiting trial and therefore were still trying to act innocent. In the jail, inmates were classified and placed in pods based on their current charges, their criminal history, and their criminal sophistication. I worked primarily in a pod that housed 72 inmates ranging from 18 to 24 years old. The inmates were classified to my particular pod because they had been arrested several times and most of them were gang members. I was 22 years old and I was managing a group of my peers. It was always interesting when I would see people that I knew from high school who would come in for a brief stay. I have mixed emotions about working in the jail. It was a great opportunity because, as I said before, I had lived a sheltered life and I didn't hang out with the deviant crowd. It wasn't until I was out on the streets that I realized the value of this experience. I learned how to deal with selfish, criminally motivated jerks who were always looking for an opportunity to take advantage of you. Because of this experience, I was less likely to be taken advantage of or lied to, and I became really good at using my mouth to get out of heated situations rather than using my fists. The other side was that while I was working at the jail, 
I hated every minute of it. I wanted to be the one putting these jerks in jail, not babysitting them once they got there. I remember many times on my way to work, I would try to put a positive spin on my job. You know, Brian, you're, work, you're getting paid good money to babysit. You're not doing hard labor and so on. But I couldn't shake the overwhelming desire to get out on the streets, to feel the adrenaline and the excitement I had enjoyed during my internship at South Tucson. We did have our share of exciting moments inside the jail. I worked several specialty pods, such as prisoner intake and the mental health unit. Initially, I didn't like the mental health unit because I would leave work every day with a headache. The inmates in there just constantly yelled, just screaming and chattering nonstop for the entire shift. We had inmate. We had one inmate, I'll call him Michael, who would masturbate for the entire shift. Eight hours. <clears throat> he never came out of a cell to shower. He constantly pulled newspapers into a cell, wet them, and placed them all over the floor in a big in big wadded globs. The smell that came from his cell reminded me of a kennel at the dog pound. And as if this wasn't bad enough, he used to take a shit, roll it into little balls, and pop them like Hershey Kisses. Hello, Doc. Do you want to check this dude's medication again? Because he ain't right. One of the best things to happen to me while working in the jail was that I became involved in the peer support program. I learned about this program while still in college. My community policing instructor at Pima College was Sergeant John Patla from the Tucson Police Department. He invited a guest, Officer Bob Easton, to speak to us about this new program he was helping TPD get started. He explained that many officers were not comfortable speaking to the department's psych doctor, but wouldn't hesitate to confide in a friend at work. Using similar programs already in place with other agencies, he helped develop training for officers to become better listeners and uh, provided them with information about outside resources they could direct their coworkers to, if necessary. I thought this was great. Who better to help than the guy who constantly puts his life on the line for public for a public who could care less? As soon as I learned that this program was coming to the Sheriff's Department, I signed up. I attended the 24-hour training class in October of 97. While in the class, I received the call. I had tested to be promoted to Deputy Sheriff, and Human Resources called to offer me the job. I was on my way. The job I had wanted so badly since my internship two years before was finally becoming a reality. Well, guys, I'd like to just thank you for tuning into this episode. Um, this is obviously a work in progress, but it's going to be something that I plan on doing in the future. Uh, like I said, I would like to just give you an opportunity to hear from my book but also to boost a little bit of content. These episodes will be a little bit shorter so that if you're on a, a short drive or don't have the time to listen in for some of these longer interviews, uh, you can certainly just grab a hold of one of these uh, podcasts, these shorter podcasts, and uh, and hear some stories out of my book. So thanks for tuning in, and uh, we'll see you guys on the next interview. We're sorry, the number you have dialed is not in service at this time.